Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest on the show is Chip Clark. He's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Genosha Biosciences. This vaccine platform company got into a jam last summer. It got through a phase two trial with its lead therapeutic vaccine for genital herpes. Clark tried to insist the trial was a success and the product had a future. The market disagreed. The stock tanked. Cash ran low. Staff morale sank. Something had to be done. How did Clark think about restarting the company? Pivoting, as he says, toward a new future as a personalized neoantigen cancer vaccine developer. Clark was candid about this difficult stretch at Genosha, and I think many entrepreneurs will be able to relate to the experience. Now, before we get going, for more than 200 years, Harvard Medical School has shaped the design of medical school education throughout the world. Now, Harvard Medical School is bringing its expertise to organizations that seek to drive growth and innovation in healthcare. Harvard Medical School designs and delivers customized executive level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are among the diverse array of companies leveraging the insights they have gained through Harvard Medical School. Programs include first-hand insights into physician decision-making, patient perspectives, real-world workflows, and the business of medicine. Advances in technology, biomedical science, and patient care that may present new opportunities for your company. Discussions on trends in patient-centered care, data science, genomics, digital health, policy, and reimbursement an exploration of state-of-the-art treatments for specific diseases. For a free consultation on how your company can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, the Long Run Podcast listeners can go to a special place. Point your web browser to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec, all one word. Now I'll say that again. For a free consultation on how your organization can gain insights from Harvard Medical School, go to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec. Now, just about everyone in the cancer R&D business is thinking about combination therapy and complementary mechanisms of action. Not only do drug developers need to see proof of their biological mechanism as a monotherapy, but also in combination with other treatments that are fast emerging on the scene this gets complicated in a hurry, especially when you think about all the possible mechanisms, dose regimens, and tumor types that need to be taken into account. Companies today often have to burn through 30 to 50 patients in a phase one clinical trial to get the answer to these important questions. That takes a lot of precious time and money. Presage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. They are working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. This microdosing tool can allow for a half dozen or more combinations of drugs to be injected directly into a single tumor 
while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. This is a way to run multiple experiments at once to get maximum information to guide drug development on time and on budget. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. Next on the long run, Rob Perez was a lower middle class kid from Los Angeles who found early on that he had a knack for sales. A college basketball player with some hoop dreams that never quite materialized, he paid his way through college by working at fitness centers. Chance brought him into the pharmaceutical business, where he ended up succeeding beyond his wildest dreams at Cubist Pharmaceuticals, the antibiotic developer. Now he's got some different ideas on how to connect biopharma to the wider world and do some good in different ways. I think you'll enjoy that conversation quite a bit. But for now, join me and Chip Clark for The Long Run. So today with me on the podcast is Chip Clark. He's the CEO of Genosha Biosciences. Welcome, Chip. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run. Thanks so much, Luke. Happy to be here. So, Chip, you and I have uh, spoken many times over the years about Genosha, um, but I don't, don't want to assume that the listeners know a whole lot of the story. So I think um, maybe we can start um, before we get into the company story, which I want to spend a lot of time on. I'd like to ask a little bit about you and uh, where you come from. So sure. maybe we could just start real quick. Uh, like, uh, where were you born and raised? <laughs> I was born in Boston and raised in the western suburbs, a town called Natick. Uh, my parents are, well, my parents are wonderful. My dad is a, was a middle school English teacher in one of the local schools. And my mother um, was also trained, <clears throat> excuse me, as a, as a middle school teacher, uh, though she uh, has a degenerative eye disease and went blind not too long after I was born. And, and so, um, stayed at home to raise me and my uh, three siblings. Okay, okay. Are you the oldest, youngest? I am the oldest, yes. Okay, okay. And, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, so um, sounds like, I mean, both your parents are educators, so uh, yeah. w was that a, a big emphasis, a value they impressed upon you and your siblings? Yeah, I, th I think so. It's, it's uh, they certainly looked at uh, sort of, their own personal paths and they like any parent wanted to ensure that their children would have even better lives than they did and so they uh, absolutely stressed um, the role of education um, I, I guess i happen to be pretty good at school i, I didn't have you know as, as thinking about <clears throat> the question of what led me into biotech and it's not as though i was um, i was very good at science and and math, but uh, not good at that to the uh, exception of other of others, um, you know, subjects. But always found it interesting. You were interested in a variety of subjects, kind of well-rounded. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to call myself well-rounded, but uh, I definitely really liked school, liked doing well in school, and um, I, I think always felt like. And this is as much from my parents' upbringing as anything that that uh, that hard work and um, you know, driving toward objectives, measurements of success were were important things to me, and, and absolutely shaped uh, the, the you know sort of the way I approach uh, work. 
Now, it's, it's funny, you know, in all the years we've spoken, I, I was just looking at your 10K before this interview and realized <laughs> I, I didn't know your first name was William. Um, and, and I thought, William Clark, uh, that, that sounds like familiar, you know, the, the core of discovery, these 19th century explorers, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Yes. So, um, no, no <laughs> there's a story there? No, no, unfortunately, no connection to, to that William Clark, uh, though I'm proud of my family. It's, it's, it's simply that my... Uh, my father is also William, and uh, my parents wanted me to have wanted to call me something other than what they call him, which is Bill. And for whatever reason, they landed on Chip. It's um, it's certainly different. Um, I, uh, I I've I've had a love hate relationship with with the name. Uh, there are a lot of people who look like me who are named Chip. Uh, so it's been, it's been interesting, but uh, I, I certainly made my peace with uh, with the name. Well, for those who are not familiar, what, what do you mean by what, people who look like me? <laughs> uh, well, so I am I am African American. Uh, my uh, my father is uh, white, and my mother is black. And uh, so when I when I think of my race, um, I, I think I truly am African American. Uh, I used to, when I was younger, consider myself black, and, and, and certainly I'm comfortable with uh, the you know, sort of black culture. But I ended up being troubled by that label, if only because it meant that I was, by definition, rejecting my father, who was such a big part of my life, who, as it happens, um, reject, faced rejection from his family to marry my mother. Uh, they got married. They got married before um, interracial marriage was the law of the land. So it was, it was pre the Loving uh, decision in the Supreme Court, and he, my dad, lost his family, uh, or at least lost the uh, his parents and, and their generation of his family for marrying my mom. And so, for all of those reasons, I, I, I couldn't consider myself just black. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm truly African American. And as I said, there aren't, there aren't many African-Americans named Chip Clark, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I can imagine that. Um, but it gives you uh, a, a different lens on the world uh, to, you know, travel. I mean, as frequently as I'm sure you did between these two worlds, so to speak. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think, um, I think I've always felt a little bit different, a little bit apart. I never looked... I mean, I grew up in a you know, sort of a working class suburb of Boston, and, and there weren't there were not many black families, um, and in, in the you know, where both parents were black, um, and um, I was my family was the only uh, mixed race family that I can recall, and so we felt different, apart, uh, never really unwelcome, uh, except by a you know very very small minority. Um, perhaps looked down upon a little bit, um, but that always shaped uh, certainly the way I felt about myself and how I fit in. It, it, it made me feel very clearly that I had to be self-sufficient and that I wanted to prove to people that I could be just as good at whatever largely academic things as, as people around me. You, you do well in school. Yeah. Um, and and where, uh, where did you end up going? I went to, to Harvard undergrad and had a great experience there. Um, and, uh, 
And from what did you study? I studied uh, economics, so <laughs> it doesn't obviously put me on the path to uh, to biotech. But um, my kind of minor was Japanese language and history and political economy, um, which which also had I think a significant influence on me. I, it made me. This is this was in the late '80s, and so it was a, at a time when Japan was supposed to be taking over the world, taking over the U.S. and I felt really strongly that A, I wanted to go to Japan, and B, that I wanted to, to work in a career where um, I would be making something, making a product. Um, the, a lot of my classmates went to law school or consulting or banking, and um, you know, not to in any way look down on those professions, but it just wasn't right for me. And, when I was looking around for things to do uh, post-graduation, I was solving for something that would let me make stuff and would let me go to Japan. And um, I was fortunate to join um, uh, what is now GlaxoSmithKline. It was SmithKline Beach at the time. And they had a management training program there that would both give me groundings in the industry, help me see the company from a few different angles. I got to do pharmaceutical sales for going on a year. I did some business development. I did HR. Wait, this is during like summers or internships no, as you're an undergrad? No, this was, I, I'm sorry, oh. this is my post-graduation job. It was a two-year management training program oh. yeah, for people right out of college. Okay, but you also did an MBA at Wharton, but that, yeah, that came later? That came later. Okay, so so you, you you get out of Harvard, and wow, this is there, there's a lot to learn here. I mean, the language, the culture, the pharmaceutical industry, all rolled together. Uh, how, how fluent did you get in in all those three things? <laughs> well, I've had more experience with uh, with uh, the pharmaceutical industry than with Japan, though I did live and work there for four years. And um, yeah, I was I was in Tokyo and. Uh, had a tremendous professional experience. I had a, uh, a team of several people working with me first in um, R&D project management and then in uh, business development. I, I was there um, uh, to, to take you back. SmithKline Beach was one of the companies that was pretty aggressive in trying to branch away from the pharmaceuticals as a core business. And one of the things they did was purchase uh, DPS, Diversified Pharmaceutical Services, a PBM, um, and, and my job was to implement that in Japan, um, which was ultimately not hugely successful, uh, but still a, a tremendous uh, learning experience. Um, so. Uh, my yeah, that was a trend for a while when the pharma companies got, uh, they had that. And uh, I mean, they tried to diversify in other ways too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and SB at the time was pretty broadly diversified. It did have and continues to have a consumer products division um, as well as a clinical lab division. So it was, it was just a really interesting company that was trying to stitch together different parts of the healthcare system into a coherent whole, uh, not ultimately fully successful, but still uh, for a, a, a young guy out of college, uh, you know, a great way to um, see how companies work generally, to figure out what I personally might have been uh, uh, good at, 
and to kind of figure out a good uh, sort of professional path. It sounds like a good combination of strategy and, and operations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the, you know, kind of deep in the weeds if you're, you're dealing with PBMs. Um, yeah. So um, then uh, I guess the, the entrepreneurial bug hits. Yes. Yes. So tell me about that. I guess it all actually starts with the time at Smith Klein Beach, um, where, you know, I had this chance uh, to try to build a business in the Japanese market. And there was no blueprint. And where the healthcare system uh, by design was just completely different than the US system. And so it was not immediately obvious that a pharmaceutical benefits manager could in any way succeed uh, in Japan. There was just the notion of pharmacists or even um, uh, physicians through a formulary uh, impeding somehow on the decisions that physicians made with their patients was um, would have been at the time almost impossible to contemplate. And even today, though I'm, I'm, I'm sort of removed from how the Japanese healthcare system works, I think it's still really challenging uh, to contemplate. Physicians are treated like God there. Um, I had a kind of a funny experience with the healthcare system uh, while there, I was on the, the company soccer team and uh, broke my leg in a game and, uh, you know, sort of went, I was brought to the emergency room to get my leg looked at and put in a cast, etc. And um, the doctor was sort of manipulating my leg and, and then I asked a question and he looked at me astonished. Not, not, not because I could ask the question, you know, fluently in Japanese, but the notion that I was asking a question so through him that, that it, 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 he was incredibly flustered. And, and, and my question was this, you're about to take an x-ray, can't I get a lead vest to, uh, you know, to protect my body? And he said, he said uh, uh, oh, you don't need that. And I said, well, why are you leaving the room? <laughs> and he was absolutely floored by it. So yeah, that's, a, that's an anecdote that speaks to the, the broader point that, that uh, the Japanese healthcare system is very different. I don't believe even today there is this, I think there's a soft notion of formularies, but the notion of external control over physicians' decisions um, um, has not really taken root the way it has in the U.S., <laughs> There may be some American physicians listening to this now thinking, boy, maybe I should uh, check out moving over to Japan. I kind of like not being questioned. <laughs> and, and, and look, you know, there, there are cultural reasons for that. And, and, and yes, there are, there's good and bad to every system. So, um, and, and kudos to Japan. But, um, but yes. We're, we're, but you, you, uh, you were involved with Vanda, I believe, mid, yeah. mid-2000s? Yeah, exactly. So, How did that happen? Well, so... Being in charge in Japan made me really want to, you know, be an entrepreneur. And so I left Japan right after that, after four years, to go to business school with the idea that um, that was going to be both a transition back to the U.S. for me. From my experience, if you're in Japan more than four years, you're sort of there for life, and I wasn't ready to make that commitment. 
Um, and, and so business school is both the way for me to make a transition back to the States, build a network, and, and, and sort of get groundings in the other aspects of, of sort of company building that could potentially be of uh, use down the road. And had every intention of um, working on another kind of startup opportunity. It turns out that the first opportunity I had was within SmithKline Beach, and they were looking to spin out um, the, the PBM and uh, sort of the information side of the PBM as a new co, and I worked on that during business school. But it sort of collapsed around the time of, and, and probably in no small part because of, this SB Glaxo merger. Um, and so um, as a kind of backup, I ended up, and I don't mean to sound glib when I say this, I ended up in biotech venture capital with some ex uh, SmithKline Beecham uh, Pharma executives uh, at a firm called Care Capital in Princeton, which was a great way to um, sort of understand how small companies, small biotech companies start and get built successfully. And had a you know just a, a wonderful experience, kind of surveying the landscape, meeting with you know, hundreds of companies probably in the end, or at least reading the business plans for hundreds of companies, and and getting a sense of what made companies work or not work. And I became convinced that you know, I could do this. And so, while at Care Capital, wrote the business plan for uh, Vanda Pharmaceuticals, and together with uh, one of the partners at Care Capital, Ben and Jerry Carabellis, uh, and a couple of other people, including uh, the current uh, and still CEO of Vanda Pharmaceuticals called uh, Mihalis Polymeropoulos, sort of wrote the plan, uh, seeded the company, uh, and, and, and the notion behind the company was uh, and remains in licensing clinical stage assets, repurposing them. And and uh, and driving them to commercialization. It was, I think, the medicines company really pioneered this model, and I think we were one of the first fast followers on that model. And then the company's still uh, quite successful. They have uh, two approved products on the market that are really making a difference for patients. So, um, now, did you um, did you go all in uh, in an operating role, or did you sort of straddle the worlds of venture capital and you know the the band of startup? Yeah, I straddled the, the world for a year and and found that uh, Vanda went from probably a quarter of my time to half my time to virtually all of my time, and really wanted to go all in, and so I left the firm four years after joining to be the chief business officer at Vanda. And had a wonderful experience there from 2004 all the way through 2010. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then you get the call from Genosha, yeah. all right? Yeah. And, and now this is um, antigen discovery, mm-hmm. antigens that are gonna be recognized by T cells. Correct. Right? I mean, even, even then, uh, that was, the idea. You got a platform here. Darren Higgins is a Harvard scientist. Yeah. He'd done some work even back at Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, what was interesting about this? Well, I, I think, as I said before, I had a lot that I loved about the, the Vanda experience. The biggest um, sort of challenge, I think, that we faced there was that ultimately we were not, we were developing not necessarily completely novel programs. And what 
from among the opportunities I was evaluating when considering leaving Vanda, what to me was just so exciting about Genosha was that if our platform could work, there would be a way to transform uh, the discovery of vaccine discovery and development. Um, and, and our focus at the time was entirely on infectious disease, but think about this. We have 40 plus infectious diseases that are um, addressable by vaccines. And it's only a slight simplification to say that for the remaining infectious disease where there aren't good vaccines, it's because we haven't figured out how to bring the T-cell arm of the immune system to bear to address those pathogens. And, and, and the notion of coming up with vaccines against so many terrible pathogens was hugely exciting. So technology, of course, was top of mind, but as, as would always be the case, you know, um, it's looking at uh, the quality of the board, the quality of the investors, the quality of the team that all factored into my uh, decision that ultimately um, Genosha was where I wanted to, to throw my energies. You know, at that time, that was when I first started paying attention to the company. And uh, uh, people forget, I mean, it sounds like a long time ago, but, you know, Merck had come out with Gardasil and uh, Pfizer, Wyeth uh, had come out with Prevnar. Um, these were very successful, commercially successful and scientifically, clinically meaningful um, vaccines. So it was, you know, vaccines had gone through this long kind of fallow period, right, yes. where they were all cheap generics. And yes. like we take for granted the measles, mumps, rubella, the diphtheria, pertussis, all that kind of stuff. Yes. Um, you know, enormously important public health interventions, uh, but not a lot of new innovation yeah. going on. Yeah. And that's what you looked at and said wow, you know, if we could do <laughs> even one yeah. like that, uh, that would be that would be pretty worthwhile. Exactly right. Though I, I think in retrospect, it almost looks like it was a big pharma fever dream because uh, you, you talked about those, some you know, very important vaccines that launched around that time. And there were a couple of big acquisitions like J&J investing in uh, Crucell for a few billion dollars. And then very little after that. <laughs> it's been kind of a quiet period. Well, and it's important to note that in biotech, I think it's also important to, you know, beware the tidy success narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it's always easy to look back in retrospect yeah. and say, wow, those guys came up with Prevnar and Gardasil and it all happened in a straight line. Right. Um, rarely is ever the case. Um, and here we are today. You're, you're, you've been at Genosha now for um, eight years. Uh, it's been a long road. You've taken this company public. I think the day that uh, we're recording this, your stock is, you know, a little over a dollar a share. It's not quite you just raised some like. money, but mm -hmm. no, I mean, you went public, you know, it's something a lot higher than that. Yes. Um, the, so um, I, I think it's important to talk about the, um, the setbacks along the way and how you respond to those. Um, but um, Absolutely. Let's, uh, let, let's talk about that, that first program. How did you settle on uh, like really uh, – putting your resources, your time and energy and money into the genital herpes uh, therapeutic vaccine. What, what was exciting about that? Yeah, so I, I inherited some of the work, but I, but I also endorsed it. And, and, and the bottom line, uh, thinking from our perspective was that, uh, of that, for a few reasons, this was a really attractive opportunity to pursue. One, millions of patients need new treatments for genital herpes. Um, it's a market somewhat served by orally available uh, oral drugs that um, afford 
some control over symptoms, some control over disease transmissibility, um, but by no means provide sort of bulletproof uh, protection for patients. So huge unmet need was, of course, at the top of the list. Um, the second point um, in, in making this attractive to us was the, that several big pharma companies had tried and failed to uh, develop a, um, a therapeutic vaccine, an, an immunotherapy to treat genital herpes, which to us meant both that the problem was real and hard to solve, and that if we could crack it, there would be um, companies waiting at the other side for our product. And I think the, the third, and of course this, this matters, was that there was some compelling evidence that uh, T-cells mattered in this disease. The, you know, we call it the T-cell hypothesis. The, the pathogen spends um, some of its life, or in fact most of its life, essentially invisible to the antibodies around which um, vaccines have been designed for decades. And so there was... Antibodies come from B cells. Yeah. We're talking about T cells. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's just the notion of bringing the other arm of the adaptive immune response to bear to control a terrible pathogen was hugely compelling. So I think all three of those rationale uh, points uh, factored into our decision. And probably the fourth um, factor was that as we contemplated the clinical development program and, and what proof of concept could look like and, and, and the time, cost, and uh, effort required to get there, it seemed like an easier lift than it would be for, for many other diseases. So all of those factors um, influenced our prioritizing the genital herpes program. You could look at a, um, a surrogate endpoint with viral shedding to get a, mm -hmm. an early read of whether it's uh, acting in the scientific way you, you theorize. Um, yes. Genital lesions was, you know, a, a pretty um, objective um, measurement of clinical benefit. You probably didn't yes. need a 10,000 patient clinical trial uh, to take this yes. through FDA. Um, all this lined up wearing your business hat because this is who you are. You thought, okay, I think we, the, you know, the cost benefit pencils out here. Right, right. No, exactly right. So it made, it made perfect sense to go after it, even if, um, you know, it's not a disease that if you have, you're going to die. Um, the, the benefits, the benefits to patients would, would still be transformative. And so for all of the reasons you just said, it made business sense. For what I've just, for the reason I just said, it's something that you know, it's it's a cause you can really rally people behind, whether patients, physicians, or you know, of course, your employees as well. But now, were you pretty much the only company out there running trials like this? Uh, no, there ha there were and remain a few other companies trying to develop uh, vaccines against uh, genital herpes. Um, uh, a company called the Genus, which has since pivoted uh, itself into focusing almost entirely on uh, immuno-oncology. A company called Vical, uh, a company called Cordon, an Australian company, are just a, a few examples of, of the, the, the peers in, in the field that um, you know, we sort of, I guess, had friendly competition with. Okay, so they're out there designing trials, and, and 
um, communicating to the street about some of these same endpoints. So people mm-hmm. are getting a little more familiar with, okay, what does success look like here? Um, what's it going to take to get something through the FDA? I mean, you weren't telling right. a, a completely, you know, out of left field novel story nobody had ever heard of. Well, uh, I, I think you're right. I think it's also the case, though, that um, if you think about investors generally, they don't have that many vaccine plays for them to be evaluating, whether you're talking about investors meaning the street on the buy side or, or on the sell side analysts. So there, there was, of course, some education to do. But on the other hand, um, uh, what ultimately goes into a vaccine is fairly straightforward. It's proteins, it's an adjuvant, um, and, and there was nothing truly sort of esoteric about the disease or how we were seeking to treat it. So pros and cons. Pre-Sage Biosciences has a microinjector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drugs at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the mouse or in the patient. You can test multiple combinations in a single experiment, helping keep your drug development plan on time and on budget. This device is being used in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And did you know that Harvard Medical School designs and delivers customized executive level programs that provide business and science leaders with a fundamental understanding of current medical practices, the changing economic landscape of healthcare, and the latest advances in biomedical science. Companies like Google, Amgen, GE, and Athena Health are already leveraging new customer insights gained through their work at Harvard Medical School. Okay, now grab your pencil for those of you who like to take notes for a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School, long run podcast listeners can go to a special place. Type in hms.harvard.edu slash long run exec, all one word into your web browser. I'll say it again for a free consultation on how your organization can gain new customer insights with Harvard Medical School go to hms.harvard.edu slash longrunexec. So you, uh, you work your way through phase two. Yeah. And you're getting interim readouts along the way. But then you come to a point where, where you have to make a decision to, to do something different, to pivot, yeah. to, to yeah. restart the company. What was your, uh, how, how did you think about that? And along with your board, I, I presume. <laughs> yeah, they, it's, yeah, they were certainly aware of and involved in the decision making. Well, look, I mean, I think, so, so, so we, as you said, had, were successfully developing this program. We, we ultimately ran three clinical trials and um, with a few exceptions, showed very consistent impact on both surrogate endpoints as well as clinical measures um, in, a, in a, a statistically significant and clinically meaningful way. Uh, so the, the, the darn thing works. <laughs> but um, the, the fact of the matter was that 
Um, we um, had our phase 2B data to sort of go into the timeline specifically. Our phase 2B data came out in the middle of last year. And, and we at that point had about a year's worth of cash left. And, and you know, our, our sort of mantra with our investors um, leading to those data and, and from that point on was, you know, this is a really exciting opportunity and it's not, we're not going to do phase three unless we can do phase three, meaning we're only going to proceed into phase three if we have the, the capital, whether through uh, fundraising or through partnership or partnerships. But, but Chip, now you're saying the phase, the, these, these clinical trials were positive, but yet the yeah, stock market yeah. didn't see this in the same way. What were they That's seeing? Correct. What were they seeing that, uh, how are they looking at this differently than you? Well, I think, I think ultimately what you're, the way we think about it is that there was sort of a disconnect on uh, the value of the asset. Not, I don't think anybody disagrees that there are millions of patients who need and want new treatments for genital herpes. But I think the, the, the sort of the verdict on the asset, um, you know, the, the, the judgment of investors and, and potential partners thus far has been uh, either that there was a real willingness to pay for uh, Gen 3, that's the, the name of uh, the program, uh, based on the profile that emerged. So it was positive, but you wouldn't look at it and say that it was a cure. Um, it was, we thought, a very credible complement to and possibly replacement for um, the oral medicines. And so there was disbelief about the willingness to pay for that. Or there was an unwillingness, I would say, to invest in the phase three program, which was going to cost $150 million or so. It was going to take three plus years. And, and maybe there's some people who um, uh, sort of had problems with both of those things. So I don't think there was much dispute that the drug worked. It's uh, ultimately an MPV dispute and, and, and sort of a willingness to undertake the investment. And then it becomes kind of like a, you know, a downward spiral, like your stock goes down, your cash is, uh, you don't have 150 million in the bank. So you can't just you fund this thing yourself for three years. You're going to need right. to go to the street to raise more money, but you know, you'd have to do it at really painful terms if you could even yep. do it at all. Um, yeah. So, so that, and this is where, you know, I think a lot of companies get in real trouble. They kind of grit their teeth and, uh, you know, try yeah. to exaggerate what they've got and they can sort of, you know, transform into a different kind of penny stock that that's out there, <laughs> you know, proclaiming they've got something better than they really have got yeah. and, and attracts, you know, uh, you know, a a sketchy group of investors. <laughs> um, now, you didn't want to do that, right? I mean, but well, we, so, but you got to do something. I don't want to say that uh, the thought didn't cross my, my mind. This drug works, and the passion for it from from patients and and providers is real. I believe in this product, and so the the possibility of of discontinuing, you know, clinical manufacturing work on it while we, you know, look for the right home was an incredibly hard decision. Um, but I guess part of what made it um, a relatively um, 
rational decision for us to pivot to cancer was that in some ways the, the cancer field had evolved in a way that really played to the strengths of our platform. So, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, checkpoint inhibitors over the previous years had really demonstrated, of course, that, um, that patients really could benefit from an immunotherapy, specifically one that takes the breaks off T cells. Others had shown that um, the patients who benefit from checkpoint inhibitors are the ones whose T cells are specifically um, homing in on the uh, personalized mutations in their tumor, the so-called neoantigens. And so we were sitting there saying, well, gosh, we have this platform. We have a real way to profile T cell immune responses patients make. Uh, to their disease, whatever the disease is. And so we thought, well, gosh, we have a better way, potentially, to identify the antigens to go into a vaccine. And if we were right, we would have a great way to make personalized cancer vaccines. So and when so, is and this, this science is emerging, um, you know, yeah. around the same time you're going through the, you know, this exactly. hard decision with uh, what to yeah. do with your general herpes program. Um, you end yes. up deciding to uh, put the herpes program on the shelf September yes. of last year, 2017. Correct. Um, yes. You lay off 40 percent of your staff. Yes. A hard thing, I, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I almost can't put into words how hard it was. Um, you know, first, again, this is a product that patients are screaming for. And so, you know, it's really, really hard to let go of it in that sense. Um, it was incredibly hard to say goodbye to Genotians who had worked so hard on Gen 3 and who believed in, uh, in me and in, in, in the leadership team that we were on a mission that not only mattered, but that we could carry through. And so to have to stand up in front of the company and to say that we didn't yet have the means to advance Gen 3 and that as a consequence, we had to take that you know, very bitter medicine was, um, I mean, it's, it's easily the, the, the most difficult thing I've had to do this is a lot. This is a big strategic move and, and there's a personal dimension to it. Um, do, yeah. do you get any memorable pieces of advice on, you know, how to restart the company? Well, I, you know, when you, when you build a company, you, you hope that you're building the company, yes, for success, but also to withstand shocks. And I've uh, been very fortunate to have a very, uh, experienced and patient board um, to help guide me and and my team. I've been very fortunate to help build, I think, a very capable uh, team. And so, and 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 by the way, I married well. <laughs> so my uh, um, my my wife, although she'd probably tell you there were days when she thought I was going to grow a threadbare gray afro and walk the earth for a couple of months. Um, <laughs> you know, having, uh, having her to serve as just a, a support, um, a supporter and, and as a sounding board was helpful. 
And and I think um, you know where where the board and and you know others have been so incredibly helpful is just in allowing me and our team to step away from the day to day, think strategically about. Don't drink your own Kool-Aid and yeah. think it, like Pollyanna, like, well, this is exactly going to get right. better and yeah. we'll just hang in there a little while longer. And then then people really start to lose confidence. It's like rip off the Band-Aid yeah. quick. Yeah. Okay. So now, um, you know, I think people who know the science of immuno-oncology, I mean, they can get this very quickly. Um, your company has got a platform. It's been around a long time. And it's very good at discovering individual neoantigens that are recognized by T-cells. Uh, you know, that's um, that's kind of obviously important by this time, you know, summer of 2017. So, uh, but, you know, so you, you've got your internal facing part explaining this whole decision. And I'm sure, you know, your people, I mean, hard as it may have been, they understood it. Um, but, you know, you got this whole Wall Street and external world, which is pretty unforgiving after a company hits the iceberg. <laughs> yeah, think? well, and I mean, I, I'm sure you've, you've heard everything out there, like people thinking that this is kind of an opportunistic thing, like, yes. oh, you're rebranding the company as yep. IO when the IO wave is yep. cresting. You know, it, it sounds kind of like, yep. a, you know, it could be a fly-by-night kind of thing. Um, and and meanwhile, sure. like sure. there's these all these, you know, hot companies that are getting started with lots of venture capital. I think you named nine different competitors. Yep out there. And, and, you know, but one of the benefits of being young and new is that, you know, you don't have the taint of a failure, right. uh, a perceived failure. Yeah. Um, so, so now you're rolling the rock uphill. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what, what's, what's that like? How do you, how do you reboot this thing? Well, we, we Restore to, confidence. You're absolutely right. We, we had to be convinced that not only were we doing this uh, uh, because, you know, it's a hot area, but we had to be convinced that we had something real to be able to co compete with companies that were ahead of us in terms of branding, companies that were ahead of us in terms of, you know, sort of tremendous capital raises. And, and, and look, and we're, we're sort of, honestly, we're honored to be competing with some really, really smart companies. Um, but yeah, can we do it? We absolutely believe we can. We, it's, it's, I, as I said, you sort of build a company to withstand shocks and, and we continue to have a strong team and a thoughtful board. Um, we had to really be convinced of a game plan and we had to sell it. So, I mean, as you can, as you well know, uh, Cambridge is an incredibly hot job market for biotech. And there's almost an embarrassment of choice for people in the industry. And so one of the biggest things for me was to figure out how to get people to stay. And, and, and so that was the impetus for just moving as quickly as possible forward on sort of devising a game plan, uh, one that we can have conviction on. Um, think about how best to package it internally, talking about what is, what, what is the opportunity to transform ourselves? And then to really um, recruit people, re-recruit the employees, to, to be excited about what we could do when, uh, for many of them, you know, sort of the day before, the week before, they were thinking um, exclusively or, or very much about genital herpes. Um, and, you know, Fortunately, one of the, the privileges of working in Cambridge is that you, there are lots of great examples you can, you can 
of, of companies that went through shocks like ours uh, to, to turn to for inspiration. And one of the things I did was um, I looked up, um, uh, I, looked, I looked at our share price on the day and, and, uh, of, of a big all hands meeting we had. And, and from memory, it was like $1.40. And I looked up when a lot of other uh, biotech companies were trading at $1.40. And, you know, the bad news is that there are lots of biotech companies that, that have that experience. But, you know, I found it, I found the date when Amgen, uh, I'm sorry, Biogen was trading there. And I found the date when Celgene was trading there and Gilead and, and, and Alchemies. And I could put up in front of the company that look at these, you know, massively successful companies, companies that um, are transforming thousands, millions of lives potentially today. They've all been there. And so, you know, ultimately, um, and, and I, of course I had to admit, this was, you know, really, really aggressive cherry picking of data. <laughs> I mean, you know, of course. Still, but, you know, I mean, companies go through their trough. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, it's an innovative business. Yep. Most things fail. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to happen to everybody at some point if you're trying to do something difficult. Yeah. Um, and, and, and worthwhile. And, but yeah, that's, um, how many people actually, Jump ship because you know as well as I. There's probably half a dozen companies yeah. with, at your at the at the Kendall T stop yeah, where people exactly. could just like go like they could they wouldn't even need to change their commute. They yeah. could just walk across the street yeah. and go work there. So as a consequence of the restructuring itself, we went from about 110 people to about 70, and then through um, the uh, attrition, we lost another 20 people. And these were, and, and, and I, bear, I bear none of them ill will. There are so many choices here, as I said. And, you know, from the period of September of last year until January, when we recapitalized the company, all they were, I was asking them to buy into a vision, uh, to an opportunity to truly transform a company. But I also couldn't point to um, the money to do it. And so I was very transparent with the company about, you know, where we were in business development discussions and in financing discussions. And, and, and fortunately, you know, I, I think I just had built a, a little bit of a reserve of credibility such that people um, trusted me. And, and ultimately, um, the, the theme that I kept harping on, and it was part of my story with that, that share price analysis with Biogen and Celgene, et cetera. It was, you know, look, companies go through this. They, they adapt and they change. And, and, and my sort of call to arms was, let's transform the company together. The only thing that's not on the table um, is changing the company name. Um, I want to work with everyone to redeem the company's name. But in the meanwhile, what we're doing, especially now that we've recapitalized the company, is revisiting everything from names of rooms to uh, core values to, you know, the look and feel of our website, all as a part of this, yes, transformation of the company, but as a way of um, ensuring buy-in uh, across the company and re-embracing the sort of the startup ethos. You, you mentioned some of the, um, 
the cosmetic type things that companies do, you know, with uh, let's spiff up the website or, yep. or change the name, sure. which is one nice way to make people forget about that failure and let's turn the page and never, ever talk about that thing that failed again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, people do remember. Yes. <laughs> and and it, it, uh, it, it actually rings hollow yep. um, in, in many cases. Yeah. Um, so you're keeping the name, but, uh, you know, you, you got to do something. Uh, you're, you are kind of running on fumes by this point. Yes. You know, I saw your, you were down to about 12 million cash at the end of 2017. Yes. So, you know, when you're burning 50 million a year, yes. uh, you don't have to be a math genius. <laughs> That's not going to last very long. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so what do you do? What, what do you do next? Yeah. And in fact, we had, we had debt on the balance sheet that was rapidly approaching the amount of cash on hand. And so the situation was, was, you know, even tighter than you you describe. So, so we had to find a way to quickly uh, tell a new story in an environment where, as as we've said, there are so many companies trying to do something similar in in the new antigen vaccine field, and where uh, investors have just much like uh, Cambridge-based uh, life science workers, there's an embarrassment of great, seemingly great opportunities uh, to invest in hot new technologies. But, um, you know, fortunate for us, um, as I said before, we have, um, though we are competing in a, a field where, you know, very well-heeled, very smart companies like Moderna and Gritstone and Neon are playing, um, we also have a real difference. Um, our technology platform works and is very different. And we've shown data most recently at Sitsi in November, really in our minds showing not only that the output from our platform is meaningfully different from the sort of educated guesses that others make to, to design their vaccines, but that those differences should translate into better vaccines. You are identifying the specific neoantigens yeah. that are recognized by the T cells and the T and, and the T cells that infiltrate tumors on a per or, patient, or no. on a per patient basis. Well, it's um, I think it's a it's a logical leap that they infiltrate tumors because others have shown that the uh, sort of the cohort of antigens in the tumor is is pretty um, reflective of what you find in blood in the periphery. And we're using peripheral blood. Uh, but I don't, yeah, there, I don't think there's much controversy that we are taking a, a, a faithful snapshot of what's happening in the tumor. Okay, so you've got a you, you've got a platform here, and and there's a bioinformatics is an important piece of this, which you know I'm sure you've been honing for years yes. to make sure that you're 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 detecting the you know the signature antigens that mm-hmm. really matter, yes, um, that that generate more potent T cell responses. Yes, and really, it's the right. It's responses to the right antigens. Uh, you know, the, the flu vaccine kind of proved the, the importance of antigens for us this year. I mean, we, everyone, making a flu vaccine is not hard, but figuring out the right targets to include in the vaccine is, you know, bedevils us. We, we make guesses based on viruses incubating in, you know, poultry in China every year. And this year, the flu vaccine works, I forget the numbers, but it's like 20% of the time, 20, 30% of the time because we guess the wrong you know, strains to, to, to try to cover. It's the same concept here. And yeah, our, our data are preliminarily very compelling and we're gonna file an IND very, very shortly to, uh, to hopefully prove this point. 
So this is all preclinical. I know you raised another about 55 million, I think, in January. So so you have, you know, some more breathing room now to, to execute on, on an IND. If we were to change our name, I think it would be to Lazarus. Um, we, we were very close to dead, um, but we are alive and, and we think we're thriving. There's a, there's a really excited team here, eager to uh, prove that we belong uh, in the conversation with the, some of the companies that I uh, mentioned previously in the new antigen field. Now, you, you know, in my newsletter, I've written about some of those other companies and I don't, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on the brass tacks on this show. But uh, I know that, you know, this is uh, this is a serious heavy lift on manufacturing to, to get um, the, the neoantigens uh, made uh, and mixed into uh, a therapy that you can reinfuse back into patients. Um, their turnaround time is important. Yes. Um, have you, how far are you on kind of sketching out how that business model will look for you guys? Well, I won't go so far as to say that we know what we would price the product at, but certainly we have spent quite a bit of time stitching together what we think is a supply chain that can, uh, deliver our personalized vaccine in a, uh, phase one to a appropriate uh, needle to needle time and uh, sort of cost of goods. And, and we also, you know, as we look forward, believe that there's um, a, a real opportunity through economies of scale and further investment to, to dramatically reduce those, uh, both the time and cost of making the vaccine. So we're, we're certainly working with the end goal in mind, but it's going to take really kind of the experience with this clinical trial to uh, define the uh, sort of the magnitude of the lift. But we're, we're confident based on the preliminary reps we have with our supply chain that we should be, you know, comfortably within the same um, uh, time to needle, from needle, for needle to needle, uh, that our, our peers who have published data thus far achieved. It's anywhere between what, 30 days and... 90 days? Well, I think, I think everybody's goal is 30 days. I haven't seen convincing data that anybody's there. It's more likely, uh, if you look at the Nature papers in July of last year, that um, the uh, Neon founders uh, published and that BioNTech published, they were in the 18 to 20 week range. And I'm I'm confident we'll be within that range again for the phase one two A trial. But again, I, I also think we and others anticipate being able to quite substantially reduce those times. Now, for those not familiar, I mean, basically, you're taking a biopsy from a patient, looking at that tumor, studying it for its antigen profile, and and then making copies of it that you can then give back as the drug. And if that's taking say 18 weeks, I think most, most people, oncologists, patients would say, boy, that's, <laughs> we can't wait that long. Uh, we, we need, we need a treatment faster than that. You got cancer, right? And it's on the move. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why 30 days is a little more, a little more believable or practical in the market sense. For sure. But I think, I think everybody would also agree that if you can dramatically up the response rates to checkpoint inhibitors, which is ultimately what we're trying to do in the personal vaccine uh, field, that is, you know, you can be, you know, it's worth some weight for, for such a benefit. But of course, we would all agree that more patients across more tumor types would be available the, the faster and, and more cheaply we could make the vaccine.
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you um, plan to make these like at a single central place that that you control, or do you have a contractor to do the manufacturing? Yeah, for now we we do have outside suppliers that we've knitted together into what we think is a coherent supply chain. But the opportunity to go from call it eighteen weeks needle to needle to something dramatically shorter comes largely from I think investing strategically in certain capabilities, um, both to um, drive down costs as well as time. But I I can tell you that in our 18-week needle-to-needle time, shipping is one of the bigger drivers of of time as we we shuttle the product components from point A to B to C to D, et cetera. So you need to have some friends at FedEx who, uh, you know, (laughs) treat your packages with care. Yes, yes. But I think, you know, we were, as you noted earlier, able to attract some some very, of course, I think they're brilliant investors, deep-pocketed investors to to buy in, not just to the notion that we should succeed in, in the upcoming clinical trial, but that, you know, the vision that we have around building best possible vaccines around the right antigens is uh, a great basis for uh, longer-term investment in the capability of better, faster, cheaper vaccines. Well, I thought it was interesting that NEA, which is typically a a private, you know, early stage or early to mid-stage investor, um, they were part of this um, in a, in a public company and Ali Bebahani joined your board. And, uh, I think most people think he's an up and comer. He's not, uh, he, not dumb money. No, no, no. Um, I'm, I'm certainly at this point biased in, in thinking that he's a smart guy, but, uh, <laughs> um, but I, but they, they did quite a bit of work. And, and when you have a, a fund as large and as successful as, as theirs, you can bring a lot of resources to bear in evaluating opportunities. And so we were, Honored, we were. We feel validated by um, by their investment. Not to say that we're resting on our laurels in any way, but um, it's it's a nice feather in our cap. Um, I can tell you that uh, the, the knot in my stomach day to day is different than the knot in my stomach that existed from sort of September to January. It's it's no longer are we going to survive, but it's uh, you know how do we keep getting better <laughs> as quickly as possible, and I'm. Really pleased to have NEA as one of our partners in that regard. That is a little better feeling if you're going to have a knot in your stomach, which I suppose you kind of always do as the CEO yeah. for one reason or sure. another. That's that's part of the fun of the job. It's it's you're never truly off, but if you're excited about who you're working with and what you're working on, it, it ultimately is. Uh, and, and by the way, you have a great wife at home who, who understands that you have this knot in your stomach. Um, you're going to do just fine. So when you uh, cherry picked that stock table data on those uh, those other companies, uh, did you also notice how long did they have to go <laughs> through those troughs before they uh, they went up and to the right? Um, the the answer varied, <laughs> uh, and uh, but uh, there are a couple of instances, and I can't I can't tie specific numbers to specific companies in my head anymore. But um, there were a couple of companies that 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 went into fairly stratospheric heights within a couple of years, and there were a few companies where it took longer. But we're doing this for the long run for I I I think the right reasons, but we're certainly also cognizant of the fact that. We have two years of cash, and, and so which which really means you kind of have a year plus to really prove that 
the strategy works, the, the team is right, that the execution is good. And if, and if you can get there, then, you know, we're confident that uh, even if we're not day-to-day uh, truly tracking our, our, our stock price, it's going to be on the right trajectory. If you've got two years, you, you know, you're, you said you're on the verge of filing an IND, you should have some data that you can show to the street by that point. Yeah, to to keep this going. I think I think there's validation comes in, in in many forms, and of course, as you said, one is the actual data from the clinical trial. The t- the second is um, publications and, and presentations at medical meetings on sort of the underpinnings of the platform and, and interesting data that we're generating there, and then of course uh, partnerships is um, is uh, an area of intense focus and interest of ours. Um, I think this notion that targets matter, the notion that Choosing the right antigens for vaccines, whether personalized or not, as well as for cell therapies, is real. And I think there's recognition that we have potentially a, a sort of the better mousetrap here. And so I think validation could come in the form of, of business development deals this year as well. Well, Chip, uh, we're out of time, but uh, I want to thank you for spending a little time with me today on the long run and sharing your story about the the knot in the stomach, uh, which I'm sure <laughs> a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to, uh, whether um, whether they're able to talk about it or not. Thank you, Luke. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks to Presage Biosciences and Harvard Medical School Executive Education for sponsoring. Next on The Long Run, Rob Perez. Hear his story and think about the new bargain he's working on between biotech and society through a nonprofit called Life Science Cares. And thanks for listening to The Long Run. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. See you next episode.